Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll Thank you for letting me help you learn God's Word. And if you want to learn more, go to markdriscoll.org. I've got a weekly newsletter answering your questions, daily devotions, blogs that are Bible teaching and their orientation, and a small mountain of sermons going through lots of books of the Bible. So join me at markdriscoll.org and we'll help you learn even more of God's Word. You may be seated, happy Easter, the first ever Easter service here at the Trinity Church, amen? What a great, glorious, and good day. Well, today we are here to celebrate. We are here to remember. We are here to enjoy Jesus Christ, the most important, the most significant person who has lived in the history of the world. And we are gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ from the nations of the earth. There is nothing as big as Christianity. More people love Jesus, billions alive on the earth today. More people worship Jesus, more people follow Jesus than anyone who has ever lived in the history of the world. We celebrate his birth at Christmas. We celebrate his resurrection at Easter. And we also celebrate every Sunday because that is the day that our great God, our great Savior, our great King, and our great Lord walked away from his tomb conquering sin, conquering death, conquering all that is against us, and giving salvation to us. And it all started about 2,000 years ago in the most humble of ways. Jesus started his public ministry around 30 years of age. He was relatively obscure up until that point. He picked 12 disciples to follow him. 11 loved him, one betrayed him. It just goes to show you that every time God is in the process of building something, Satan is in the process of breaking that same thing. Jesus preached, taught, healed, performed miracles for the course of about three years. His name, Jesus, literally means God is my savior. Christ means the anointed one or the chosen one. If you were watching the Lego movie, he would be the special. Nonetheless, his resume is rather simple. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from home. He never married. He never had children. He never held political office. He never made much money. He never ran a company. He never published a book. But more songs have been sung to him, more paintings painted of him, and more books written regarding him than anyone who has lived in the history of the world. We divide history around the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of this God-man, Jesus Christ, into BC, before Christ, and AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. When it comes to Jesus, he is the defining centerpiece of history. H.G. Wells says, and I quote, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Similarly, the great historian Kenneth Scott Lauderette says, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life lived on this planet. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus today. I want you to hear from Jesus. If I wanted to know you, I would ask you. If you want to know him, you should ask him. 
Let's set aside all of the conjecture. Let's set aside all of the speculation. Let's set aside all of the philosophy. Let's set aside all of the religion. And let us just hear what Jesus has to say for himself regarding himself. I'll give you eight staggering, earth-shattering, life-altering, eternity-destiny-shaping statements from this man, Jesus Christ. Here is the first one. Only Jesus came down from heaven. Jesus says this in John 6, verse 38 and following. For I have come down from heaven. That's a remarkable claim, amen? Amen. After church, you go up to somebody, where are you from? I'm from Tucson. I'm from Deer Valley, right? I'm from Glendale. I'm from heaven. Really? What's the zip code for there, right? I mean, that's an amazing claim. People don't just say things like, I've come down from heaven. That's a staggering claim. Would you give me that? That's just, what this says is that Jesus pre-exists his life on the earth, that he is eternal, that he didn't begin his life here on the earth. He began his life in heaven and then his life in heaven entered into life on the earth. That's the creator entering creation. That is he who is eternal entering into time and space. Well, hearing this, you can imagine there was a bit of controversy. They began to grumble about him. So they're, they're talking. They're, who does this kid think he is? Where does he say he comes, he comes from heaven? Yeah, we saw it on his LinkedIn page. It linked over and it showed all of his former residences. It said Nazareth and then the kingdom of heaven. That's what it says. The story continues. They began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? Didn't our kids go to school with him? Didn't our kids play little league with him? He didn't come down from heaven. How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? There is this infinite chasm between us and God. There is this continual attempt to fill that great gap with religion, with spirituality, with morality. And it is us trying to ascend up into the presence of God. All other religions teach that in some form or fashion, we ascend up to God. Only Christianity teaches that God descends down to us. That we do not go up to God, that God comes down to us. That we do not rise up, but rather God comes down in great humility. When you see Jesus, when you hear Jesus, when you consider Jesus, you need to understand that he is one come down from heaven to bring heaven to us, to bring the kingdom of God to us, to bring the presence of God to us. And apart from Jesus, there is no revelation of, there is no reconciliation with that kingdom from which this great king comes. Number two, only Jesus claims universal authority. There is this section in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. It is penned 600 years before the Lord Jesus even walks on the earth. In this prophetic promise and prophecy, there is given the coming of one who will be a king, a king who rules over all kings, a a ruler over all kingdoms, one with a kingdom that will never end. Here is how it is stated. Before me was one like the son of man. Make note of that. This is a title for a coming of a king that he would be the son of man. I highlight this for you because this is Jesus' favorite title to designate of himself. Some 80 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels which record the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, on some 80 occasions, Jesus ascribes to himself this title and he takes it from Daniel, like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that is God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given what? Authority. 
You need to know this about the Lord Jesus. He has authority over all times. He has authority over all nations. He has authority over all people. He has authority over you and you and you and me. There is no one, there is nothing that is separated from the ruling throne of Jesus. And he has all authority over all people. And everyone is going to give an account to him. My dear friend, I love you, but this is a day where you must recognize that your life is not lived apart from his authority. You are not an independent person. You are a dependent person. You are not a God. You are a mere mortal made to belong to God that ultimately your life is found in relationship to this man, Jesus Christ, and your life is lived under the authority of this man, Jesus Christ, and you will die and give an account to this man, Jesus Christ. He has all authority. None of us will die and give an account to a mere. We will all die and stand before the throne of this great king and give an account to the one who has all authority. This is a staggering and astronomical, unprecedented, unparalleled, unequaled claim in the history of the world. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. That is more powerful than nations, more powerful than kings, more powerful than kingdoms. He goes on to say, all peoples, all nations, and all men of every language worshiped him that ultimately there is one God for all nations, one God for all races, one God for all languages, one God for all peoples. In this way, Christianity is the most inclusive and exclusive of all belief systems. It is inclusive where everyone is welcome and it is exclusive to come to Jesus and to only come to Jesus. The exclusivity is Jesus, but the inclusivity is for all people from all times in all nations and all languages and all races and all creeds and all cultures. This great king furthermore is described his dominion. That's his rule. That's his authority is an everlasting kings come and go. Kingdoms come and go. Nations rise and fall. Rulers take their thrones and then enter their graves. But this king, this ruler, this God, this savior, his dominion endures, we are told, forever and ever and ever. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So there was from this moment forward, a yearning, an awaiting and anticipating, where is this king and where is our kingdom? And they waited, my dear friends, for 600 years. Parents telling their children, who tell their children, who tell their children, who tell their children, who tell their children, He's coming, just as we tell our children, he's coming again, he's coming again, he's coming again, he's coming again. And as we are waiting for his second coming, they were awaiting his first coming. And then Jesus arrives from a poor peasant family, born to Mary and Joseph, probably a teenage couple. The first 30 years, he's swinging a hammer as a carpenter with his daddy. And then he opens his mouth and he starts speaking and he says things like this in Mark 14. Again, the high priest asked him, this was an interesting moment. The religious leader put Jesus on trial. That had to be weird, amen? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help you, you? I do. Right, that had to be a weird moment. 
Isn't it weird how we feel like we could put Jesus on trial and he needs to give an account to us and he needs to prove himself to us and he needs to answer our questions and he needs to refute our objections. They put Jesus on trial. The religious leader asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Here's the point. Everybody thinks you're God. You keep saying you're God. Just tell us, you're not God, right? He says, I am. If you know your Bible, back in Exodus, there was a guy named Moses and a bush was on fire. Somebody say, this is unusual. I know, I know, I fully agree with you. That's why we call it a miracle, not a Tuesday. It's unusual, okay? So there's this bush that's on fire. Here's the unusual part. The bush is talking to Moses. And the bush says, go in and tell the leader of the most powerful nation on the earth to let my people go, that, they, that the slaves need to be set free. My children need to be liberated. Moses has a very reasonable question. When I get to the king, who, who should I say has sent me? He's thinking, because if I tell him, thus saith the bush, could be a little bit of conflict over in the, in the court of Pharaoh. And so what the bush says is, is actually behind the bush is God and God is speaking through the bush. And what God says, tell him that I am has sent you. I am the eternal one, the living God, the only God. Go tell them that I am has sent you. When, when they look at Jesus, they're asking, who are you? He says, I am. I was back there speaking to Moses. I was the one who set children free from slavery and bondage in Egypt. I am. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am, I am the God of the Hebrew people. I am the God that you have been longing for and waiting for and praying for and yearning for. I am is here. I am is here. And then he continues. And you will see the son of man. He takes another title. He takes it right out of Daniel, the son of man, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, seated at the right hand of God, the father. This is all dominion, all authority, all power, all rule. My dear friend, I need you to know that that's where Jesus is today. That if you were to see Jesus today, he is alive and well. I have good news to report that he has ascended back into heaven, that he has returned to the place that he came from, that right now the Lord Jesus Christ is seated on his throne. He has all dominion. He has all authority. He is worshiped by the angels and the departed saints. They're crying right now in his presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory that that's where Jesus is today. That's where he was in eternity past. That's where he will be in eternity future. And he entered into human history for a brief few years to tell us who he is, to tell us why he came and to accomplish salvation for you and for me and for us. The story continues. The high priest tore his clothes. He was offended. Some of you have been offended by Jesus. That's because you need a change of mind regarding who he is. You need a change of heart regarding what he says. You need a change of life regarding what he does. They were offended by him. And then they asked, do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Jesus emphatically, repeatedly, clearly, unapologetically declares himself in many ways to be God. Some of you have wrongly been taught that Jesus did not think he was God, that that was something that was made up by Christians in the ensuing decades following his life on the earth. The reason we believe Jesus is God is because Jesus said he was God and Jesus showed he was God. Jesus said he was God with his words and he showed he was God with his works. We are only echoing what he had to say regarding himself. When they heard him, they rightly surmised and ascertained that he is claiming to be God. That's what blasphemy is. 
And that is not something that people say, particularly in a devoutly religious context, because it will get you killed. Knowing this, Jesus said it and then came back back from death and said, I told you so. So he knew exactly what he was doing. The next thing that Jesus says, um, only Jesus rules creation. John 10, 36. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Why do you accuse me of wrongly saying that I am God? I say I'm God, but I am God. Here's what you need to know. When Jesus says he's God, that's either true or false. This claim is too magnificent, it's too significant to just dismiss it. You must accept it or reject it. The story continues, because I said I am God's son, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am the father. Again, they tries to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. He says, I told you I was God and I showed you I was God. If you don't believe my words, look at my works. And what Jesus does is rule creation. There's a day where there's a massive storm on a sea and they wake Jesus up from his nap and he just, he says, stop. And the storm stops. You can't even get your kids to do that, right? (laughs) You can't just say something and then it obeys you. See, God spoke creation into existence and when creation heard the voice of Jesus, it recognized the voice of its master and creator. Jesus commands creation. What he's saying is, if you don't believe my words, what about my works? Don't just hear what I say, see what I do. There's another occasion, a couple of my favorite miracles of Jesus. A massive crowd shows up, thousands upon thousands of people. There's no food. And a little boy brings the equivalent of a Hebrew Lunchable to Jesus, it's a Hebrew Lunchable. And what Jesus does, he multiplies it and feeds a stadium filled with people. Only God can do that. There's another time where Jesus goes water skiing without a boat. That's awesome, okay? He just walks on water. Jesus does things that only God can do. He has authority over creation. He has authority over you. What this shows us is that his dominion is over all that has been made. Furthermore, Jesus clearly, emphatically, unapologetically, repeatedly said he was God. This claim is staggering. This claim is history altering. It is soul saving. It is destiny determining. Before I read these sacred words to you from the lips of the Lord Jesus, let me tell you one thing. No one else makes this statement. There is no major world religion that has as its founder saying, I am God. Krishna, Buddha, Muhammad would all tell you they are not God. In fact, anyone who would claim to be God is making a virtually unprecedented claim in the history of the world. Only a few people in the history of the world have said they were God and they were not believed in mass and they were disproven to be nothing but fraudulent. Here's what Jesus says. Only Jesus claims to be God. John 10, 30 through 33. Jesus answered, I and the Father are one. Again, they, the religious leaders, they picked up stones to stone him because if you claim to be God and you're not, the penalty is death. The penalty is death. 
But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Do you not like what I do? They're essentially agreeing. We like what you do. You feed the hungry. We like that. You encourage the downcast. We like that. You welcome the outcast. We like that. It's not what you do. It's what you say. Christianity is never offensive by what it does. It is offensive by what it says. This is why you and I cannot show the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you and I have this great, glorious, and grand opportunity to echo the words of Jesus. That this world needs hope, help, and healing. And that his name is Jesus Christ He is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the returner, and he is the ruler over all that he has made. And that nothing makes sense apart from him, and there is no life separated from him. And Jesus here is going to make this astonishing claim. They then say, we are not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. My dear friend, what do you think about that claim? You cannot say he is a good man when he tells us that he is the God man. You cannot tell me that he is simply a good example because if he is lying, that is a bad example. You are brought to this moment today. All of your life is culminated and intersected at this sacred moment. You need to make the most important decision you will make in your entire life you will make the decision that will determine the rest of your life. You will make the decision that will determine your eternal life. Jesus once asked this penetrating question, who do you say that I am? Jesus says that he is God. My question to you, dear friend, dear ma'am, dear sir, is he your God? Is he your God? And this is the claim that distinguishes Jesus, separates Jesus, elevates Jesus above everyone who has lived or will live in the history of the world. In fact, there was a judge, Gaynor from New York, who surmising and summarizing all of the evidence says this, the alleged crime for which Jesus was tried and convicted was blasphemy. Jesus Christ said he was God and the entire reason that he was opposed, the entire reason that he was hated, the entire reason that he was crucified, the entire reason that he was murdered was to silence his claim to be God. We are here today at the Trinity Church to declare that Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ is God. Next, only Jesus claims perfection. In this public environment, Jesus asks this penetrating question, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? How many of you in public would not say, I dare you to find any fault, flaw, or failure in my life? I'll tell you right now, I'm not saying that at all. None of us, because even if you don't believe in sin, even if you're not a particularly religious person, You believe that you're a sinner because we always say nobody's. Oh, you all knew that one. Okay. We all make mistakes. That's the sinner's way of saying, please don't, right? That's how we deal with our sin. We don't know what to do with it. So we sort of acknowledge it, but we don't have a way to really be forgiven of it. In fact, we think that the holiest people are those who know they're not holy. Amen. 
When you meet somebody and they say, okay, here's my faults, here's my failures, here's my flaws, here's the things I regret, here's the remorse that I live with, here are the mistakes that I've made. We say, you know what? That seems like an honest person who knows themselves. They seem trustworthy because they know how imperfect they are. In fact, most religious leaders are pretty open about their failures, their sins. Jesus says, I have never sinned. That's amazing. How many of you, if you read that on a resume, you would not hire that person. Like, I could type 80 words a minute and I've never sinned. You're like, we don't even need to interview that guy. Jesus' claim is staggering and he's saying it openly and publicly. When it comes to sin, here's what I need you to know. Sin includes commission. That's where we do a bad thing. Have you ever done a bad thing? Anything you regret? Any day you're haunted by, any decisions that you're devastated by? If right now I could send you back in time to to take a day from your life back and make some changes, what day would that be? What changes might that be? Sin includes commission where we do a bad thing. It also includes omission where we don't do the things we're supposed to do. The way you're supposed to live your life, the people you're supposed to help, what you're supposed to do with your money and your deeds and your dollars and your days, any lack, want, failure therein is a sin of omission. Sin includes our, our words. You ever said something or typed something you regret? It includes our deeds. Have you done something that you wish you had not done? It also includes our thoughts. Did you know that God knows your thoughts? Aren't you glad that other people don't know your thoughts? Aren't you glad that God didn't put a monitor right here so other people could see what you're thinking? Because you'd have to walk around like this, amen? (laughs) Very, very bad thoughts. And sin includes our motives. This is where you do a good thing for a bad reason. And that counts as sin too. Knowing all of this, none of us could ever possibly or even potentially say, I'm without sin and I, I welcome anyone to come and prove me wrong. That's astonishing claim that is made solely by Jesus. And again, that's either true or false. The next point is only Jesus can forgive your sin. Mark chapter two, verses five, seven, and eight. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, now this man has two problems in his life. He has suffering and he has sin. You and I have these same two problems. We have suffering and we have sin. We need to be healed from our suffering. We need to be forgiven of our sin. This man, he is a paralytic. His body does not work. But in addition to his physical problem, he has a spiritual problem at the soul level. And that is that there is sin in his life. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus just do? He forgave somebody's sin. You don't need to blame someone else for your sin. You don't need to excuse your sin. You don't need to hide your sin. You can have your sin forgiven. You can have your sin forgiven. Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives this man's sin. Jesus forgives my sin. Jesus is willing to forgive your sin. Now, hearing this, the people who were present, especially the religious leaders, they didn't like what Jesus had to say. Many religious leaders to this day don't like what Jesus has to say. And they're thinking, they're not saying it aloud, but they're thinking it in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. He's saying things that only God should say. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? That had to be a weird conversation, amen? 
Jesus says, I forgive you. And you're, you're in your mind. You don't, this is your inner voice, not your outer voice. This is you thinking to yourself, who does he think he is? He, does he think he's God? He's saying what he should. Jesus is like, I know what you're thinking. Oh, you do? Yeah, because not only do I say I'm God, I am God, so I know what you're thinking. You need to be forgiven for those sinful thoughts you have against me. That had to be a weird moment, amen? Man, I wish I had that ability. That would be so helpful. Jesus knows the thoughts and inclinations of the heart. And Jesus wants to heal and forgive that man. And he wants to also show the sins in the life of others, including their unbelief, to encourage them to turn from their sin and their rebellion and to trust in him. And what they rightly ascertained, however, is this, that when we sin, we sin against God. Now, when we sin against people, we know that we sin against people. For those of you that have been sinned against, and we've all been sinned against, you've been victimized by someone, betrayed, abandoned, hurt, abused by someone. When we are sinned against, we know that, that, that someone has done wrong toward us. And then we struggle to forgive them. Similarly, we have sinned against others and they struggle to forgive us. But let us not overlook the fact that all sin that's ever been committed is not only between human beings, but also between us and God. In Psalm 51.4, he says it this way, against you only, Lord God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That all sin is ultimately against God. Therefore, not only do we need to forgive those who sin against us and be forgiven by those that we sin against, we need God to forgive us. And my dear friend, if you are not forgiven by God of your sin, you will be haunted by your sin. Some of you live with regret, remorse. Some of you live haunted by the worst day of your life. Some of you are bitter and angry and vengeful and unloving because of your hurt. Someone has sinned against you and you will not forgive them. Others have separated from you. They have declared war on you. They have turned against you because you have sinned against them. You feel all of that pain, all of that hurt, all of that separation, all of that conflict, all of that grief. It leads to anxiety it leads to depression, it leads to anger, it leads to loneliness, it leads to despair, and ultimately it leads to death until God forgives you. And once God forgives you, God's forgiveness starts to flow and you receive it and it cleanses you and it heals you and it changes you and it blesses you. And then that forgiveness from God flows through you to take all of that hurt, all of that bitterness, all of that pain, all of that grief, all of that shame, all of that anger, and to wash it away from you. And then that forgiveness flows from God through you and you live as a forgiven person who's a forgiving person. You start to forgive others. You start to love others. You start to bless others. You start to share with others the gift of forgiveness that God gives with you. This is the one thing that the world desperately needs. This is the one thing that everyone on the earth would be utterly transformed to experience. This is the root of all of our problems, and this is the beginning of all of our healing, that we need to be forgiven and forgiving. 
And when Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven, let me tell you this today, the Lord Jesus is willing to look at you and you and you and to say, your sins are forgiven. He will heal you and he will forgive you and give you a new life marked by his life in your place. Jesus, furthermore, only conquers death. Mark 8, 31, he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, there's his favorite title for himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus repeatedly during his life said, they're going to kill me. Three days later, I will conquer death. He was killed on a Friday. We call it Good Friday. We celebrated it last Friday. He rose on a Sunday. We call it Easter Sunday. We celebrate it every Sunday. For a few thousand years, God's people only worshiped on Saturday. We started worshiping on Sunday because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. Furthermore, you may have caught it here. Who killed Jesus? The religious people. So if you are here and let's say you're not a Christian and you're hearing about Jesus and you say to yourself, I'm interested in Jesus, but I don't, I don't know if I wanna be a religious person. Don't become a religious person. Religious people are arrogant, they're self-righteous, they're judgmental, they harass Jesus, they oppose Jesus, they murdered Jesus. We're not asking you to join team religious, we're asking you to join team Jesus. Amen? 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 And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, they're gonna kill me, but I will kill death. That ultimately all sin leads to death. That our God is the living God. That our God is the source of life. When we separate ourselves from God, it is like a piece of technology being unplugged from a power source. The process of death begins and eventually it dies. That is our life spiritually and physically apart from God. That, that death, the Bible says, is our enemy. It's our adversary. It's the one thing we can't conquer. How many of you have buried someone that you love and you miss? And in that moment when they were suffering or dying, in that moment when you were grieving and you were crying, something in your soul simply said, this is wrong. This is not the way that the world should be. This is not the way that relationships could be. Death is Oh, not friend, death is enemy. Death is something that must be conquered. That's the whole point. And, and it doesn't matter what we do, we cannot defeat death. How many of you drink lots of water? Hey, how many of you eat lots of vitamins? You're all gonna die filled with water and vitamins. <laughs> it, it, because death comes for us all. And Jesus comes to defeat the problem of sin and the consequence of death. And here's what happens. When someone is well-known and they die, we bury them in a place that is well-known so that we can visit there to memorialize and commemorate their life. So I've had the honor of traveling the world. Those who are Jewish in orientation, they look back to Father Abraham. And if you ask them, well, where is Father Abraham buried? They'll say, well, he's buried over in Israel. And, and you can go there and you can go there right now. There's a big tomb and it's a memorial and possibly right now there are people there just crying, oh, dead father Abraham, there's his body, he's gone. Similarly, if you're in Buddhism and you trace your leadership back to the Buddha, say, where is he buried? Well, he's buried in India. We know where he's buried. There's actually a huge shrine built. You can go there and, and buy a ticket and, and go remember the dead Buddha and cry and weep bitterly, oh, the dead Buddha. 
we miss you. Similarly for Islam, they trace their leadership back to Muhammad. Where is Muhammad buried? Well, they know where he is buried. There is a tomb that is memorialized. You can go there. People are probably right now crying, oh, dead Muhammad. You go to Israel, you're like, hey, just got off the plane, jumped off the bus. Where's Jesus' tomb? They're like, we don't know. We, we can't find, we'd love to sell tickets, but we have no idea where they buried him because he's not there, amen? That's why they don't go. I had this weird experience. I landed in Israel. I'm like, all right, where was Jesus buried? They're like, we don't know, man. We, we wish we knew. We could sell a lot of tickets if we knew where he was married, where he was buried rather. And, and ultimately they will tell you, maybe he was buried here. Maybe he was buried there. We don't really know. We found one that kind of looks like it. You want to see it? You're like, well, I came a long way. If that's the best you got, that's what I'll take. We'll go do the little pretend thing. And here's, here's the deal. Did people know where Jesus was buried when Jesus was buried, yes or no? Yes. Say yes. Okay, both of you agree with me. That's very good. Okay, now when Jesus was buried, everybody knew where he was buried because when he died, his tomb belonged to a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was a wealthy political and business leader. After Jesus died, Jesus was poor. Jesus didn't have a tomb. This guy, Joseph, gifted post-mortem his tomb to Jesus. And he knew where it was, just like you know where your property is. He knows where his property is. There's a deed with it. It's registered. It's all legal. It's very simple. Everybody knew where Jesus was buried. The Roman government, to make sure that the body was not tampered with, they actually rolled a big stone over the entryway of the tomb, and they marked it with a seal of the Roman government so that no one would tamper with it. They posted a guard on duty, a Roman soldier. Uh, everybody knew where Jesus' body was buried. On Easter morning, a few women, probably with you know, grief in their hearts and flowers in their hand, at the beginning of sunrise, they make the journey to go to the grave of Jesus and to shed their tears and to say their goodbyes. And they get there and the stone's rolled away and there's an angel and he's like, I have good news. He's not here. And they begin walking back into town and Jesus meets them. Hi. You know why they didn't come back to the tomb? Because they went to breakfast with him. There's no reason to go, you know, pluck your guitar, you know, light your candle and shed your tears. If you can go have breakfast with a guy who had a funeral, just go have a party. That's what they did. And what we hear from Edwin Yamauchi, he's a historian. He investigated this historically. He said that in Palestine, in the days of Jesus, there were the tombs of some 50 religious leaders who were all memorialized and enshrined. And people would go there. They would light their candles, they would leave their flowers, they would shed their tears and they would say their goodbyes. But Jesus' tomb was never memorialized. It was never enshrined because he wasn't there. He's in town having breakfast. Jesus conquers death. Not only that, he shows up over the course of 40 days to prove himself. So he shows up to people who are doubters, like a guy named Thomas. Thomas said, I won't believe in the resurrection of Jesus unless I see it for myself. So he sees Jesus and he investigates the scars in his body. And Thomas literally falls down and does as we should. And he proclaims and worships, my Lord. Jesus, you're my Lord. Peter was Jesus' friend, saw him risen from death. Jesus' enemies saw him risen from death. Crowds upwards of 500 at one time, 1 Corinthians 15 says, saw him risen from death. He hung out for 40 days. This was news. This was historical fact. This was reality. Even Jesus' own family worshiped him as God. How many of you have a big brother? 
How many of you are right now in the process of starting a religion in devotion to them, right? <laughs> Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, go on to be pastors, write books of the New Testament bearing their name, openly, publicly proclaiming until they are put to death. My brother never sinned. He said he was God. He showed he was God. We worship him as God. He's our God. Not only that, Jesus' own mother worshiped him as God. If anyone knows you're a sinner, how many of you are mothers? You moms know, you're like, I love them, but they're a wicked little one. You know that. You know that. Oh, your mom knows, my mom's here. I would never pull my mom up and say, mom, tell them about your sinless son. I would never, we're not gonna do that. I, I love my mom and she will tell you the truth, right? She broke a, a, a small bonfire of wooden spoons over Pastor Mark and he earned every one, okay? Your mom might love you, but she, especially if your mom's religious and devout, she's not gonna worship you as God, amen? And she's not gonna encourage others to worship you as God. Jesus' mother Mary joined the early church worshiping her son as her God and savior. Only Jesus conquers death. Only Jesus forgives sin. Only Jesus reveals God. Only Jesus transforms lives. Only Jesus grants eternal life. Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he promised he would do. And 2,000 years later, we are part of the biggest movement in the history of the world, Christianity. How in the world could you possibly explain Christianity coming into existence, billions of people worshiping him as God from all the nations, tribes, tongues, languages of people, if he is still a dead man and not the God man. Ultimately, Jesus rose from death and all of us are in his historical wake, walking with him, trusting in his resurrection victory, his forgiveness of sin, his eternal life, and his transformation at the deepest level of our existence. Which brings me to my last point, and it's a great one. <laughs> Only Jesus can get you to heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am. Other religious leaders will point you to the way. Jesus is the way. I am the way, singular and exclusive. The truth, singular and exclusive. The life, singular and exclusive. And then Jesus makes this claim. Jesus, what about other religions? What about other ideologies? What about other spiritualities? He says, no one, no one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Amen. No one comes to the Father but through me. Today, this is your day of decision. This is your day of destiny. This is the day of your salvation. God has brought you here to hear about Jesus Christ, to hear from Jesus Christ. See, the last frontier is death. We can plumb to the bottom of the ocean. We can explore to the end of the cosmos. But there is one thing that we cannot see through a microscope or a telescope, and that is what awaits us on the other side of the grave that ultimately only the Lord Jesus has passed through that final frontier, that he has conquered death and come back to reveal to us who and what awaits us on the other side. 
My question to you, I love you so much. I love him so much. I want you to love him so much. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you excited about Jesus? Will you die and open your eyes with a smile on your face to see Jesus when your faith becomes sight and the longings of your soul become satisfied and sin and death are no more and all that remains is glory and goodness in the presence of Jesus, resurrected, ruling, reigning and celebrating together forever. So if you are here, this is the day that you give your sin and you give yourself to your Savior. And we will celebrate that with baptism. And let me explain to you what baptism is. Baptism is our identifying publicly with what Jesus has done for us personally. Jesus lived without sin and said he was God. He died in our place for our sin and was buried as our substitute. Then he rose from death, conquering all that was against us and his water cleanses us from filth. So Jesus cleanses us from sin. And so baptism is where the Christian identifies themselves publicly with Jesus. Now, if you have never been baptized as a Christian, this is a great day for you to do so. We have, some of you have not prepared for this. Well, God told us that he was going to save you today. And he didn't tell you until you came because he knew that you would turn around and drive home. So he waited to reveal this to you right now. And we knew that you were going to get saved today. And so we had a t-shirt made up and we will baptize you in the t-shirt. We have towels for you. We have a place for you to change that is not public. In addition, we have shorts for you and we would love for you to meet with someone, to talk with someone, to pray with someone. If you have questions about Jesus, if you have objections about Jesus, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to know more about Jesus, we would love to talk with you. We would love to serve you. We would love to pray for you. We won't pressure you, but we will encourage you to give yourself, to give your sin to your savior and to receive forgiveness of sin and the gift that only Jesus gives, eternal life, which is a condition of life that begins now and continues forever and ever, amen. In addition, if you are someone who is here and you are even considering committing yourself to Christ, we would love to talk to you. So this moment, I'm gonna bring our ushers forward. We're gonna collect our tithes and offerings. If you are a first time visitor, please give us your visitor card. We love you, we wanna follow up with you, we wanna get to know you. And I have good news to report. For those of you that call the Trinity Church home, how old is our baby church plant? Eight months old. Look at what God has done in less than one year. This is supernatural. This is God's grace and God's provision. For all of you that have served, all of you that have prayed, all of you that have given, all of you that have cared, thank you, thank you, thank you. On behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. And we're going to sing and celebrate, so please don't leave, amen? Why do you want to leave in the fourth quarter with two minutes on the clock when your team is winning, amen? You wanna stay, you wanna jump up and down, you wanna have a party, amen? Amen. And so if you have questions about Jesus, you're interested in being baptized, I would encourage you, just go to my left, we'll talk to you and pray for you. The rest of us can sing and celebrate with the band because Jesus is alive. So Lord Jesus, 
Lord Jesus, on behalf of these wonderful people that I have the great honor of loving and leading, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, that you are not dead, that you are alive, that you are ruling and reigning as the Son of Man, that right now you are surrounded in glory by angels, that, that you right now, Lord God, are being worshiped among the nations, all of the people in all of the nations with all of the languages are all singing the praises of Jesus Christ, our great God, our great savior, the defeater of death, the giver of salvation and the lover of all who belong to him and trust in him. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit right now. Bring life to those who are spiritually dead. Bring healing to those who have been spiritually hurt. Bring hope to those who are discouraged and bring your presence to your people. And Jesus, as we come to worship you and to celebrate you, we look forward to the day when we too rise from death. When one day sin is no more and death is no more and there's a great eternal homecoming in your presence where you'll wipe every tear from our eyes and we'll be together forever enjoying you as your resurrected people. We look forward to that day and we celebrate you on this day and we love you, Lord Jesus, amen.